The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 20th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll discuss the first two episodes of The Last Dance, ESPN's documentary series on the end of the Chicago Bulls dynasty of the 1990s. We'll also talk about basketball prospect Jalen Green and what his decision to go straight to the G League means for the NBA and for college basketball. Finally, we'll look at the state of sports media, which, like pretty much every industry, has been ravaged by the coronavirus. Like the rest of you, I'm at home, with my home being in Washington, D.C. Joining me from his home in D.C., it's the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? I'm good. How you guys doing? Doing okay. Before we get to the show, we have an announcement to make, an important announcement. So listen up. Remember what I said a few seconds ago about getting ravaged by the coronavirus that applies to Slate as well. Over the last few months, we've gotten record traffic on the site. It's a clear indication that the work we're doing is needed and that it's valued and appreciated by you, our listeners, and our readers as well. At the same time, ad dollars have plummeted, and that means we're less and less able to get the revenue we need to finance the work we do. This is not a unique challenge by any stretch. Pretty much everyone is going through something right now. But for us at Slate, it is an acute uh, challenge. One way you can support us is by signing up for our membership program, Slate Plus. I've been pushing it on this show for years, so you probably know the pitch. $35 for the first year, bonus segments on this podcast and others, along with other perks and privileges. And you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. So that is the soft sell. We are now going to give you the harder sell. Starting now on a temporary basis, every other episode of Hang Up, so every other week, is going to be for Slate Plus members only. This week's episode, the one you're listening to now, it'll be available for everyone, just like usual, with one bonus segment for Plus members. Next week, non-Plus members will see a preview of the episode in their podcast feeds, get the intro and the first segment, and the rest will be reserved for Slate Plus. As I said, I want to emphasize that this is temporary until we have enough ad dollars to sustain the show again. And this is not happening to every Slate show. If you have other favorites, the hosts of those shows will tell you if anything is changing. So before I pass the mic to Joel and Stefan, I want to be transparent and say this is not something I want to do. I don't want our show to be heard by fewer people. I don't want to take it away from people who've been listening since 2009, since Stefan and Mike and I started, or who've been listening since 2014, or who've just started listening last week. But I'll also be honest and say that it's something that we need to do if we want to keep this show going, and we all do want to keep it going very badly. And to do that, we need your help. If you like the show, if you want to keep hearing it, if you appreciate what Slate has done and is doing and will continue to do, then please subscribe at slate.com slash hangout plus Joel. Yeah, no, I think you said it well that uh, I'd hate to think about our listeners, you know, potentially not hearing us every other week, but it has to be this way right now. And I hope that, you know, I'm, I'm new to this team 
Um, but I hope that, you know, we've done enough work and, you know, uh, created enough fans that they're willing to follow us into Slate Plus. If you can and you do uh, enjoy the work that we do, um, and we do put a lot of work into it. It's something we work on all week in addition to the other work that we do. Um, I hope that you'll follow us on the Slate Plus. I'd hate to think that people, you know, would would not be able to hear us every week. 35 bucks for a year, man. It's a pretty good deal, I got to say. There's not a lot of media deals out there like that. So, you know, hope that we can do this and it, hopefully down the line here in a couple of months or so that we can go back to the way things were. That's the ultimate hope. Until then, I uh, hope you'll follow us on the Slate Plus. And I would only add to all of that, that if you're a loyal uh, hang up and listen listener, maybe you don't read much of other things on Slate or listen to other Slate podcasts, you take this as an opportunity. If you're going to spend the $35 and join Slate Plus, take advantage of everything else that Slate offers, all the other great shows and other great writing on the website. Yeah. And if you do subscribe using that link, slate.com slash hangup plus, then that is tracked and monitored. And it will be acknowledged that people are joining because they like our show and want to listen to our show. And so that's just an extra enticement there that if you do appreciate the work we do and want to support us, if you subscribe using that link, then that will be known and understood by the powers that be at Slate. And I would only add one other thing, which is that we totally appreciate everyone who listens to this show and has listened to the show for however many years going back to 2009. And we want to keep, as Josh said, keep giving you stuff to listen to every week. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On June 13th, 1997, Michael Jordan scored 39 points to lead the Bulls to a 90-86 win over the Utah Jazz, and clinch his fifth NBA title in seven years. In the press conference immediately after the game, Jordan was asked about the difficult business decisions that needed to be made that offseason. The decision, basically, about whether Jordan, his teammates, and coach Phil Jackson would be back to compete for a sixth championship. This was his answer. We're entitled to defend what we have until we lose it. If we lose it, then you look at it and you say, okay, let's change. Let's just go through a rebuilding. No one's guaranteeing rebuilding is going to be two or three, four, five years. Cubs have been rebuilding for 42 years. (laughs) If you want to look at this from a business thing, have a sense of respect for the people who have laid the groundwork so that you could be a profitable organization. Jordan and the Bulls did come back, and their quest for a sixth title is the subject of the 10-part ESPN documentary series, The Last Dance. Joel, the premiere of The Last Dance got pushed up by two months to help fill ESPN's massive programming hole and our collective need for something new to watch. There was a lot of hype about how the doc was cold from 500-plus hours of never-before-seen footage that had been sitting in the NBA vaults in Secaucus. The first two episodes, though, mostly focused on backstory. We got young Jordan, we got college Jordan, we got early career Jordan, and just a sprinkling of material from the 97-98 season. So what did you think of how the series started, and are you uh, looking forward to the rest of it? 
I am a person whose childhood largely coincided with Michael Jordan's most famous years. And even for me, there's been there's so much ground to cover that's been lost over those years, even for those of us who were fans at the height of the Michael Jordan phenomenon. For instance, I'd never seen footage of him playing basketball in high school before. I didn't have a sense for the kind of college player he was, though presumably he was good because he was the number three overall pick in the 1984 draft. In those early years of the NBA, there's hardly ever a time I would have seen Jordan or the Bulls on TV back then. It wasn't even a given that you were going to be able to see your hometown NBA team on TV, right? So I do think that this documentary fills a really important space. I mean, not just not just a huge programming hole in ESPN, but I do think that we sort of assume that we know a lot about Michael Jordan because he's always been with us. But that's just not true. There's just so much stuff that we never got a chance to see in the early 80s, early 90s, things that we've forgotten over the years. So this documentary, The Last Dance, it's sort of a window into a time that's mostly been forgotten or undercovered. And for instance, I had forgotten that the reason the Bulls run eventually came to an end was because Jerry Krause wanted to fire Phil Jackson and bring in Tim Floyd, which sounds ridiculous on its face, but that's just something that you that's kind of lost to the story. So I can't wait to watch the rest of it. I, I got sucked in just like everybody else. I did not get sucked in quite as quickly, Joel. Um, and maybe because this doesn't feel like ancient history to me. Um, and I just felt that the first two episodes felt like a really long wind up and did not leave me dying for more. And not just because I know how the story turns out. Look, it's always fun to see this great old footage and see what dudes were wearing in the 1990s and see Jordan and the Bulls in some tiny locker room in Paris because the NBA forced them to go over there and play in some bullshit McDonald's tournament. But I was not overwhelmed by the storytelling initially. I mean, for me, I wanted from the jump, I wanted to know that I'm going to be getting some sort of backstory that has not been told yet. And the allure of those 500 hours is great. And the road that all of that footage went through is a fascinating backstory into the way Michael Jordan and his agents controlled his image and all footage and all material that had to do anything with him and the way they have controlled it for more than 20 years. But I'm just not sure what the story is yet after watching the first two episodes. Yeah, I mean, Stefan, I think you need to reset your expectations because I think it's clear after the first two episodes that this documentary doesn't have anything bigger to say about the world or even about this Bulls team. Like, there's no kind of sociology here. There's no attempt, I think, really to capture anything bigger about our world or our culture or about sports. What this is is I think exactly what Joel said it was. It is a collection of footage of these teams and of these players and of Michael Jordan that is really fun to watch and go back and revisit and look at. And it's like kind of collectively as a nation, we chose to like go on YouTube and find the most interesting footage of a young Jordan or of these early Bulls teams and and revel in it. And there is something really magical about seeing kind of the opening shot of the series, starting with the young Jordan in 84 with the script Chicago on his jersey. And he's so young and skinny. And you see the 
um, footage of him hitting his head on the backboard when he was in North Carolina trying to block that shot. Yeah, that was unbelievable. You see, like, current Mavs coach Rick Carlisle trying to guard Jordan in the 86 <laughs> playoffs. This is all, like, fascinating stuff and and really fun for those of us who saw it the first time to revisit for a generation of people who never saw it and don't know Jordan or never saw him play and only know the crying Jordan meme it's going to play really differently but if you look at this like it's the OJ documentary or something if that's the bar you're setting you're going to be disappointed well, maybe that's the problem, is that when I heard it's 10 hours, as Jason Gay wrote in the Wall Street Journal, that's one more, you know, 10 hours and 10 episodes. Jason Gay said it's one more episode than Ken Burns needed to sift through the Civil War. And maybe I'm applying a sort of higher expectation for what documentary filmmaking needs to be. And in all fairness, we've only seen the first night of the show, and we did not get advanced screeners for the entire series. So I'm hoping that, yeah, there is more storytelling and more of Jordan in it. And, you know, the the tease of Jordan, Joel, in that first episode is that maybe he was a little more open than we're accustomed to him being. I mean, he's not going to change who he is, but he told, you know, at least one really good story about um, the 1984-85 Bulls, and he walks into a hotel room, and the team is like half the guys are doing coke, and the other half is smoking weed. And then, in a very stereotypical Michael Jordan self-serving coda, he says, "I got out of there immediately because that wasn't who I was." Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that was like really endearing in a way, right? I, you know, think about. Michael Jordan being this innocent 22-year-old kid, th- theoretically. I mean, this we'd have, we only have his version of it to take of it, right? Um, you know, Orlando Woolridge isn't here to I think Michael Jordan his had honor. his vices. Yeah, Just right. Saying. I mean, I'm not sure he had them when he was 22, but he certainly developed them. And he did say, you know, I didn't drink at the time at a certain point uh, within the documentary as he's ho- like holding on to like a glass of scotch or something. So it is uh, yeah. fun to track how much scotch is in the glass whenever you cut back to Jordan. It's like, okay, is the glass almost full? Is it almost empty? And just try to like predict what Jordan is going to say based on the, the volume of liquid. Right. You sure it's not ginger ale? It could be. I mean, it is a time of, you know, at a time of Corona, it's a, something, you know, a panacea in a way. But no, I mean, Michael Jordan, I thought what was really endearing is that we got to see him laugh. I don't, you know, I've, Michael Jordan has been famous my entire life. I've never seen him laugh. I've never seen him talk about his life in quite this way. That's what makes the documentary useful for me. I don't know that I needed this documentary to say anything larger about the world or the context in which Michael Jordan is. And I do think that that's going to come up. And there is some of that a little bit, right? But I don't know that I needed all of that. I just wanted to see behind the scenes on Michael Jordan and see him as a human and not uh, a two, you know, not a two dimensional figure for once. And so to that end, if the documentary can just give us some of that behind the scenes footage, see Michael Jordan laughing, talking about asking his mom for stamps, talking about I had to get the hell out of that room. I think there's something to it. But you know what? Really, the 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 thing that I thought about, and I don't know how much of a hand Michael Jordan had in the editing and the cut of this documentary, but he certainly seemed to be settling some scores with a dead man, Jerry Krause, uh, in the first these first couple episodes. Like if, to the extent that there is a villain so far, they have identified Jerry Krause, the former Bulls general manager, and really gone in on him at, at this point. And maybe he deserves that, right? 
right? Maybe, you know, maybe there's something to that, but um, I'll be interested to see how they like sort of flesh his character out at some point. Let me just jump in there and say that you were wondering how much control Jordan might have had over this. My hunch is that Jordan and his people had a lot of control. I mean, all the stories about the making of this documentary um, are pretty clear that Jordan had editorial oversight of the documentary, whether that means, I mean, the director, Jason, I think it's Hahir, is on the record publicly saying that Jordan's people did not tell me to take anything out of the out of the movie. I'm a little dubious of that, knowing the history of the kind of control that Michael Jordan and his lawyers, agents, creative people have exerted over his image since he got into the NBA in the mid-1980s. Nick Green wrote about this in a piece for Slate that ran on Sunday about Jordan saying that one reason he was hesitant to allow this footage to be released, and all this stuff was filmed in 1997, 98, with the understanding and agreement, I think contractually, that it would never be released unless Jordan agreed to it. it. Yeah. And there were cuts made, Josh. There there was like an hour-long NBA entertainment documentary made that Jordan's people reviewed. Adam Silver, uh, the commissioner of the NBA now, was in charge of NBA entertainment back then. So he was intimately involved in in the original efforts to craft a, a documentary about the season. But Jordan told the director that he was worried that he would come off as a bully and a villain if the footage was released just because of how much of an asshole he is. And, you know, I guess it shows some self-awareness that Jordan understands that he's an asshole and that if this footage showed how he treated his teammates in practice, then people might think less of him. But as as Nick wrote, and as you just said, Joel, it's clear that Jordan is not going to be the villain of this documentary, that it's Jerry Krause. And Krause did not draft Jordan. And based on what we've read over the years and what we hear from people in the the doc, Krauss always wanted to prove that he was, if not solely responsible, then largely responsible for these Bulls championships. And he did trade for Scottie Pippen. He acquired Dennis Rodman. He elevated Phil Jackson to head coach. Krauss was the architect of a lot of this, but he does not deserve as much credit as Michael Jordan. It would be a nice little team without Jordan. But the the thing that's hard to understand and isn't really explicated, maybe because it's just inexplicable, is why would owner Jerry Reinsdorf allow Krauss to alienate all of the key figures in this team, would allow him to say to Phil Jackson, this is your last year, would not have any interest in ripping up Scottie Pippen's contract to make uh, Pippen something more than the 122nd highest paid player in the NBA. It's it's just bizarre that, you know, it was, a, it was understood at the time, right, that this was uh, a team that was <laughs> winning championships. Like, that wasn't a secret. Like, why would you side with the GM not not uh and not like Jordan and Pippen and Phil Jackson it just it never made sense then it doesn't make sense now yeah no i mean absolutely and as we heard in the clip earlier in the segment michael jordan says they earned the right to lose their championship which makes a lot of sense i mean even if even if they were going to lose like let's just say that michael jordan and scottie pippen in that iteration of the bulls lost Fine. Not only that, because you have 
a, a, a team that is guaranteed to pack in your your arena. They're still going to be stars. They're still going to be competitive. It just didn't make any sense why they just essentially forfeited uh, for Tim Floyd, of all people. And we don't really get a good answer. He does interview uh, Reinsdorf, the owner, and to the filmmaker's credit and to Jordan's credit, but maybe it just sort of buttresses Jordan's storyline, Phil Jackson is pretty candid about that. You know, I walk in to see Reinsdorf and he just says, this is going to be your last year. Here's the contract. And what does Jackson say? Nothing. He says, OK, and leaves and establishes the framework for his final season by you know creating his annual playbook that he dubs The Last Dance. Um, so I don't think we got we didn't get really a good answer from Jerry Reinsdorf as to what it was about Jerry Krause that kind of had that sway over his decision making. We do hear Jordan and and we hear about Pippen being very cruel to Krause, making yeah. fun of his weight and his height. Yeah, and that's certainly in there too, right? Yeah. yeah. And there is this dynamic of the extremely unathletic, never played the game, white guy lording it over this roster full of black players and acting like they're just kind of pawns in his game. And this was even before kind of the cult of the general manager. This was before, you know, in the NBA, kind of Sam Hinkie and Daryl Morey. This was before Michael Lewis had made Billy Bean a hero. And again, I think even at the time, you heard during the ring ceremony, the fans are booing Jerry Krause. There's no uh, contemporaneous appreciation of Krause's genius. He's not somebody who is charismatic. He doesn't have a magnetic personality. And that just deepens the mystery. Um, The Bulls kind of brought on this era, you know, Magic and Bird started it, but of the NBA player as mega celebrity. This team is a traveling circus of an as an entertainment act. And this idea that Jordan says that they earned the right, like they're minting money. Yeah. They're winning championships. The notion that you're like doing them a favor by allowing them to come back and try to do it again. Uh, again, this is inexplicable. I don't get it after watching these episodes and it will it will never make sense. If you're a Chicago Bulls fan, then you should be really upset about how this ended. Um it, it you know, having this brought up again because it like you said it doesn't make any sense at all. Um why would you antagonize Michael Jordan, Phil Jackson, and Scottie Pippen? I mean, you know, the, the you know, the mo- one of the most winning winningest trios in the history of NBA basketball to antagonize them in make their run in before it had to it just doesn't make a lot of sense and hopefully that will come up a little bit later because they are digging into this final season this is the theoretically a documentary about that last season so there's still a lot of time to get into that but even if they're able to sort of explicate that over the next few episodes it still doesn't make any damn sense i do think there's a larger lesson here about being penny wise and pound foolish the bull signing pippen to a seven-year 18 million dollar deal in 1991. It was under market at the time. Pippen said uh, in the documentary, he couldn't gamble on getting hurt and not being able to provide for his family. His father had had a stroke. His He had a brother who was paralyzed. And then the Bulls don't renegotiate that deal when it turns out that, you know, the Bulls are winning championships and printing money and like for and for what, you know, you're just creating a really horrible situation that eventually leads to the dissolution of the team. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our next segment, I wanted to declare that the Hang Up and Listen Quarantine Magazine Club will be back next week. The article we're reading is from May 1998, Sports Illustrated story with the cover line, Where's Daddy? That piece on athletes and out-of-wedlock children was hugely controversial at the time. We're going to revisit the article and the controversy on next week's show. If you want to read the piece in advance of our conversation, we will link to it in our show notes at slate.com slash hangup. The NCAA, like all sports organizations, is, at least in the short term, screwed. Unlike other sports organizations, though, it has to worry about more than just when games will return. It has to worry about whether its best employees will return, too. Last week, the number one men's high school basketball prospect in the nation, Jalen Green of California, announced that he was done being recruited by Auburn, Memphis, and other schools, and would instead join the NBA's developmental arm, the G League. Not only is Green the first top-ranked prospect to skip college in more than a decade. He's the first to take a souped-up offer from the G League designed to keep the best high school players from going overseas, specifically to Australia, as a bunch have done in recent years. Green will get half a million dollars, a full college scholarship when he wants it, a holistic athletic and personal NBA training plan, and basically his own team stocked with NBA veterans in Los Angeles that won't play the regular G League grind in Fort Wayne and Des Moines. Seems like a pretty good deal to me. Josh, who should be more concerned here, the Australian Basketball League or the NCAA? Yeah, the Australia reference is because uh, LaMelo Ball, the presumptive number one pick in this year's NBA draft, and another um, high schooler, RJ Hampton, went to Australia instead of playing college basketball or going the uh, G League route last year because Australia was the best option they had at the time. Australia had the league there had put a in place a plan that sounds pretty similar to what the G League is doing now, um, designing teams and programs and training around attracting young talent and helping them develop, which led one to wonder what the NBA was waiting for to do it themselves. And that's the question that I have now is what took so long? This obviously is a good deal for Jalen Green. He's getting uh, salary endorsements. He's getting professional training. He doesn't have to worry about the inability to market himself. And he already has a lot of young stars do. He has, I think, a million followers on Instagram, and he's somebody who's marketable now. He doesn't need college to become marketable. And so, yeah, I guess the question is, why was the NBA so willing to outsource all of this kind of development and marketing to college basketball? Why was it willing to let Australia take the lead? You know, Joel, do you think that it's just kind of coming to to Jesus or, you know, and, and understanding that this is something they should have been doing a long time ago? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, well, obviously a startup league costs a lot of money, right? And development costs money. Um, and maybe the NBA wasn't willing to spend that until they realized, well, 
we can't necessarily guarantee that these guys are going to go to Duke or Kentucky anymore, you know, and we're not going to send our scouts over to New Zealand. You know, they don't, they don't have any control over, you know, what happens in that league or how often, because I think LaMelo Ball maybe played like 20 games and shut it down over there. They don't have any means to shape or mold that guy's development. And so they're like, well, hey, why can't we do that ourselves? What I would think, though, is what does this tell you what they think about the G League? Because, I mean, they th- there's already a league there. There are teams there that are theoretically meant for the development of these prospects. And there's this path into the league. But Jalen Green comes in and they're like, oh, wait a minute. You don't need to play on any of those other teams. Let's create this other team with some other prospects. And we'll just fill it out with a few other guys. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, what was wrong with, you know, this Sioux Falls Sky Force? Yeah, the, the selling point to Jalen Green is you don't have to play in Fort Wayne. The guys right. in Fort Wayne are like, uh, what about us, man? Right. We're, we're here. We exist. Right. They're just creating a silo for the very best players. And I think to attract the very best high school players, you got to make them feel like they are different from the run-of-the-mill NBA 10-day contract guy that's been bouncing around foreign leagues and has been, you know, brought on to the Fort Wayne Racers or whatever the team is called in order to to fill out a roster. I mean, it's not going to be so attractive to the if you're competing with Calipari and Shashevsky, you're not going to offering a, a a high school kid the chance to go to Sacramento. Wait, that's wrong. Bakersfield, thank you, <laughs> is uh, not going to be as appealing as as the the chance to have your own tailored environment. The NBA has to approach this as a as a recruiting tool in competition with college. What the NBA, I mean, the question of why they haven't been willing to do this, Josh, I think, is that simply that they've effectively been in cahoots for decades. The NBA and the NCAA. The NBA has allowed the NCAA, with its approval, to be its de facto minor league. And that's worked great. And the NBA and its players are going to renegotiate at some point, though it sounds like it's hit some snags, the one and done rule that will allow high schoolers to go straight to the league. Now, if you have this supplemental option, you know, instead of going into the draft, you go to the G League for one year and you're better positioned to move up the draft ladder after a year of intensive training and oversight by NBA hired professionals. Do you guys think that the NCAA really cares about this, though? Because even still, this only is involving like a handful of players that in past year, you know, a, a generation ago, they weren't getting anyway because they were going straight to the NBA. So do you think that the NCAA really cares about any of this? I think that that's a good point, that if you just look at it in isolation as, okay, Jalen Green, and then there's another player who's doing this as well, Isaiah Todd, and maybe there will be more. Maybe next year it'll be five or eight or something. Um, If you take the top five or eight incoming freshmen out of college basketball, people are still going to watch. March Madness is still going to be a (laughs) nine-figure cash cow uh, in non-pandemic years. And people are going to have loyalties to their Schools and college basketball is is going to still be popular. But I, I think the story here, you need to take a longer view and understand that it's not just about these two or five or eight players. What I think you can read this as is one of college basketball's biggest customers, its biggest customer, perhaps, has lost faith in the NCAA as a concern. And I think, Stefan, what you said is, Right, is that college basketball worked 
as a farm system for the NBA so long as college basketball worked, full stop. And so I think this is the NBA saying, we need to hedge our bets here because college basketball, as it's currently constructed, might not be around in two years or five years. And I think if you're looking for a kind of bigger picture storyline about the NCAA, it's not about, oh, we're not going to get Jalen Green. It's about what does this say about um, the faith that the NBA or that other kind of savvy onlookers feel about this whole model of what it is that we do. Yeah, I mean, look, the NCAA model is getting exposed for what it is day after day and case after case. And yes, I think the idea of hedging your bets is exactly right. The you know the, the argument that, oh, we're going to lose some high school players, college basketball is dead. But we went through that with Kevin Garnett and Braun and all the high school players that went straight to the NBA before the league enacted the rule forcing them to go to college for one year or to do something else for one year. I mean, there have been people like Sonny Vaccaro arguing, the, the former shoe impresario, arguing that that the high school players shouldn't go to college at all if they're good enough to play in the league. They shouldn't be giving their services to these universities for one season to allow them to make billions of dollars. He's been pushing players to go overseas for a decade. So yeah, the hedging bets is huge. And, and I think that the NBA is being very, very smart here. Whether it's five or eight or 10 players, the NBA needs to be prepared for it to be 20 or 30 or 40 of the best players that are dissatisfied with the model of going to college and not getting paid. And that's where this is heading. And the NBA is smart to be creating a system that would allow the most gifted high school players to have a viable option. I mean, if you think about it, though, the NCAA basically begged the NBA to come up with this because it was about two years ago uh, on this almost exact date where the NCAA convened the Rice Commission, which, you know, Condoleezza Rice essentially agreed, you know, that, hey, our, our model is fine. What we're doing is great. Not playing the kids, not paying the kids. You know, the amateur model is exactly what it is. We need to get rid of the one and done rule or we need to deal with that. And basically, I mean, from that moment, it was only a matter of time before the NBA had to come up with some other model or something else to accommodate that. Um, and this is what that is. So, I, you know, I think the NCAA has a lot more confidence in its model than maybe we do or that other people do. And I mean, that's that's the other thing. Like a, a kid like Jalen Green, NCAA basketball means something totally different to them than it meant 20 years ago. Um, you know, these sapia tone memories of playing, you know, in a Big Ten schedule and, you know, going, you know, the rah-rah campus atmosphere and all that sort of stuff. There are a lot of these kids that don't, don't, that don't even give a shit about that anymore, that they don't, that's not something that appeals to them. They've built up their own brands on social media and they're used to traveling all around the country playing in gyms. So like college holds no appeal to them. Yeah, I guess it just sort of depends on if the NCAA is right about its own model, if you know it holds the appeal that they think it does, because there's a lot of hints from the players to the NBA and all in between that the NCAA's model is not exactly, you know, hold the same appeal that it did even 10 years ago. And I think that what happens in the next year is going to be really important here. If there is no college basketball season in 2020-21, next year's high school seniors have to be wondering, is it going to be worth it for me to commit to going to school when that model is an even more distant memory for a 16 or 15 or 14-year-old? 
if the NBA bulks up this program and does uh, a more aggressive job of recruiting the best players to come join it. I didn't even, you know, and I don't know anything about Jalen Green or Isaiah Todd's situation, but also something that occurred to me is that we're in a time where a lot of people have lost their jobs. They don't have a lot of money. It could be that a lot of these kids don't have the time to go to college anymore because their families need to be taken care of or whatever. You know, we don't know anything. I'm, I'm you know, not saying anything about these kids' individual, you know, financial situations, but um, taking a year or two, taking the risk and going to college and not cashing in to some degree is a risk too now. And so getting $500,000 plus whatever endorsement money up front is also like the safest, most reasonable deal to take for a lot of kids at this point. So um, that's something that also I thought of that, well, shit, who knows if Jalen Green's parents lost their jobs or got laid off or got furloughed or something, you know? Yeah, I think this is a particular situation for this year where it's kind of a no-brainer to, um, you know, take the money, start developing as a pro because who knows if college basketball is is happening. And for some guys who are in college, it might actually make sense to make the opposite decision because, you know, a certain number of guys go pro with the expectation that they might not make the NBA, but there's always the opportunity to go play in Europe. But, you know, maybe European basketball isn't happening this year and those pro contracts. Like, oh, I could always play internationally. Well, maybe not. So maybe it actually makes sense to go back to college for some guys. So there's just... This year is just sort of weird um, and will affect decision-making in a way that you can't really, you, you can't see it as predicting what's going to happen next year or the year after. But I will say, you have to hold two ideas in your head at once. Zion Williamson, to use the most obvious example, was exploited by the NCAA. But college basketball, it made sense for Zion to go to Duke. He became so much more famous and popular and marketable. He would have been the number one, you know, maybe he wouldn't have been the number one pick because RJ Barrett was supposedly the guy. Like, so he solidified himself as the number one pick. I think, I don't know how important that was, but he also just made himself Zion by going to Duke. And so Jalen Green is losing out on using college basketball as a marketing vehicle for himself. And whatever, this isn't really the G League, as um, you guys noted, it's like some weird like remora like entity that's attached itself to the G League and is just like some kind of adjunct training program slash team. It's you know, he's not gonna be in the public eye in the same way he would be at Duke or Kentucky. And so this is kind of a compromise position. The best choice for Green and maybe for the NBA would be for college basketball to be a legit above board farm system where you're trading on the fame and popularity and infrastructure of these kind of old-timey blue blood programs and the players are able to exploit their names and likenesses and able to get money. But since that's not happening, this seems like, you know, the the choice that makes sense for the Jalen Greens of the world right now. Okay, round 2. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to continue our conversation about The Last Dance, the ESPN documentary, and about Michael Jordan. If you want to hear that discussion and you're not a Slate Plus member, you heard a long spiel from me at the beginning of the show. So I'm not going to get uh, too deep here, but just recall $35 for the first year, slate.com slash hangout plus. Last month, James Heckman, the CEO of Maven, the corporate something or other that is presently running Sports Illustrated into the ground, told the Washington Post's Ben Strauss, we are a $150 million business, continue to forecast a profitable year, and our traffic continues to scale up. As Brian Curtis writes in The Ringer, Maven laid off 9% of its employees a week later. Among the folks that are now gone from SI are Chris Ballard and Grant Wall, writers of long-standing at the magazine who had survived previous purges. SI is now, even more than it already was, a dead magazine walking. But the coronavirus pandemic isn't just decimating poorly run entities. SB Nation, which is owned by Vox Media, has furloughed a bunch of its staffers, among them beloved hang-up guest Spencer Hall. And as Brian Curtis wrote in The Ringer last month, smaller independent outlets like the baseball site Fangraphs are in pretty dire straits with no games to write about and traffic down 60 to 70 percent. Stefan, we were pretty transparent at the top of this episode about what's going on at Slate and what we are doing to try to you know, make it through this pandemic. What are you seeing in sports media and kind of what are your bigger picture thoughts about what's happening in our industry right now? Well, I guess the terror, the fear is that the companies that own sports media outlets will say, we don't need to go back. I mean, all of this obviously is hinges on how quickly and to what degree the advertising market rebounds. I mean, you could certainly argue from a news perspective, there may not be any games, but there is plenty to write about right now. And you said that more people are reading Slate than had been before. Even in sports, the the ramifications of the, the effects of the of the coronavirus spread across every game, every league, every industry, and in every country. Um, there is a ton of news and profiles and features to write about related to that. The sad reality, though, is that even if traffic is up, if advertisers don't want to capitalize on that traffic online, I mean, forgetting about print, it's going to be grim. Yeah, but Stefan, like ratings at ESPN are way down. It'll be interesting to see what the ratings are for The Last Dance and if the desperation for new programming manifests in monster ratings. We'll see. But apparently, you know, per the Kansas City Star uh, ratings at ESPN are like 70% lower in the first week of April than they had been before. I mentioned fan graphs uh, in my intro, and there's no fantasy leagues happening. There are no games happening. And so you don't need your kind of niche analytics baseball site now. And so there are some cases where, yes, people are reading. And there are certainly, you know, we haven't lacked for things to talk about. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. You know, but Joel... We have to acknowledge the reality that there's not the audience for sports that there would be if, like, you know, the Masters had just happened and the NBA playoffs had just started. No, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, obviously the pandemic 
you know, receives a lot of the the blame for what's going on here. But in a lot of ways, this is a continuation of a trend that we had already seen. I mean, you know, just in the last year, ESPN, the magazine stopped publishing. Um, you know, the, the audience already wasn't there for Sports Illustrated. We lost the sporting news within the last three to four years. So it's not like there was this grand era of sports media or sports, you know, writing that was going on and that the pandemic took that all away from us. It just accelerated a trend that we were already sort of seeing. So that's, that's actually sort of my bigger fear is that we already saw that there wasn't quite the value that people didn't put the same sort of value in sports journalism that there once had been. And we're at a point now where I just wonder Will it ever come back? Will ESPN be able to bring back, you know, and staff up at the same way? Will somebody, you know, step into the void and take take over where Sports Illustrated left off? Even the athletic is having to make some cuts amongst its executives or whatever, which is, you know, the athletic was like the one shining example of there's some growth potential in sports writing and sports media. And it's hurting right now. I wonder, do people actually care about reading sports in that way? Do they care? Do they care about what people have to say about sports and media outlets and entities? Do they care about any of the coverage? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't, you know, if you look at the last few years, um, you'd have to say that the trend says, no, they don't care as much as they used to, at least. And I think it's going to vary from organization to organization. Places like Sports Illustrated that have been acquired by these vulture capitalists were already cutting and, and, and finding ways to get rid of high-paid talent and replace it with lower, virtually unpaid writers. So the pandemic is, if nothing else, it's cover for places like Maven um, to, to exploit and enact the kinds of reductions that they might have been planning all along. Well, and Joel, I don't think that the sports media deaths that you've been, uh, or, you know, shuddering that you mentioned, it's not necessarily in response to audience or, or interest. You know, Deadspin didn't shut down because people didn't want to read Deadspin. It shut down because of poor management and a, a whole litany of of crises that we can't get into here, but that had nothing to do with a lack of interest from readers and what they were writing. I think that there are a lot of good people at Sports Illustrated doing good work that people wanted to read. And the decline and fall of that magazine, I don't think indicates a lack of interest in writing about sports. It indicates a larger trend of, in the way that media entities are run and that writing is is monetized. Well, why, I mean, why is that though? I mean, if it's like, if sports media was, su- was sufficient in that way, like if it was enough, you know, to, to on its own, why wouldn't they be able to sustain themselves then? I mean, I know that obviously that there is bad, there are people that are, are bad actors within media and are trying to, you know, strip it for parts, essentially make themselves rich and then sell it off. Right. Um, that's what, you know, companies like Maven are doing or the company that bought Deadspin and, and Gizmodo and all those different websites. But it's it, to me though, this, the problem is still that some, nope, there have not been enough people on the other side of it that said, Oh, I see some worth here. They do have an audience. We can pay people, you know, sports writers a fair wage. You know, why hasn't somebody stepped in then to do that if it were enough? Well, I think that what you're seeing here is that a lot of sports writing talent was dispersed very widely around the country among 
local newspapers. And that's where you started your career, Joel. And I think Mm -hmm. the decline of the newspaper industry, again, it's like beyond the scope of what we can cover in this (laughs) segment, but it's not something that more interest in sports writing could have propped up. It's a much bigger story about, you know, the state of print media in this country. And then you saw the sports page that its demise be kind of hastened by the rise of The Athletic. And there's a lot of consolidation there. And there's been consolidation at ESPN. And you get this sort of emerging, you know, strata of haves and have-nots. And I think with The Athletic, it'll be interesting to see how they come out of this. Because, you know, we made our appeal at the top of the show for members and subscriptions, and that's what they're basing their business model on. And when you have recurring payments from people coming in and you're not as reliant or not reliant at all on advertising, and you just have people paying you directly, that's a pretty good place to be. Then again, you know, Stefan, the athletics being ventured by a huge chunk of venture money. Sure. And, you know, you're cutting executive pay, I think, to try to preserve as much of that venture cash as you can. But at some point, the wild expansion that they're undergoing is going to have to stop and they're going to have to rise and fall on their own. And I think we just don't know. And we don't know how the pandemic is going to affect the ultimate outcome for them or for anybody else. But you know, it, it's this consolidation that I think is concerning that like ESPN and The Athletic, you know, we used to talk on this podcast about Sports Illustrated versus Deadspin as two kind of like poles of, you know, in, in sports writing. And um, you know, now they're just both in the same position of basically not existing. They ended up in the same place. I mean, it really is stunning to me that 20 years into the Internet age, there still really isn't, you know, no one's figured out the right model. Yeah, we started the magazine club a couple weeks ago. And the thing I love about going back and reading those old SI stories is paging through those magazines. And you know, those full paid ad those full page ads for scotch and you know and cigars and shit are astounding to look at now. You can't believe that that's the model that was used to support these glossy magazines that paid tons of money or good money to people to write for them. Um, it seems so anachronistic and everything does seem more diffuse now. And obviously, you know, that's no great insight into how the internet has functioned in sports and other parts of the journalism world. But there's still this, th- this uncertainty and now has only been magnified by the pandemic is troubling. And yeah, there, you know, I said at the beginning that, yeah, there's plenty to write about. doesn't mean that anybody's going to be able to. I, I'm sure that, when all of this is over, there will be games and people will be writing about them and the stories will be published and they will be read and there will be some good writing and some bad writing and some writing that people get paid for and some that people can't get paid for and that stuff is going to shake out in a way that we can't predict now. But I think what's clear, Joel, is that what you said is extremely true, which is that this has exacerbated trends that were already happening. And even if this, uh, the coronavirus hadn't happened, that everything that I just said would be the same, but maybe just on a different timetable. I I mean, maybe it's just kind of pie-eyed optimism that I think 
you know, if we revisit this in a couple years, we'll be like, oh, here's this interesting entity that didn't exist that's doing good work and maybe, you know, people seem to be collecting salaries from and hopefully that'll continue. Or maybe some new entity will arise out of the muck and yeah, but, figure out a, a different Yeah, model. I mean, the athletic didn't exist a few years ago, right? Yeah. I just, it just feels overly pessimistic to me to be like, oh, well, maybe people won't read about sports anymore. Like that just, I think... Something something will emerge. That is my optimistic uh, take on <laughs> April 20th. Something will emerge. Yeah, well, right now we're, we're largely talking about the hollowed out remains of older institutions that people look at now. Like, I mean, I guess, you know, Yahoo Sports is, you know, an, another, you know, entity that people look at. But yeah, the only new one that really has emerged within the last 10 to 15 years, it was Deadspin. It was The Athletic. And I guess, you know, Grantland lasted for a few years, but a lot of these, you know, and SB Nation, but again, all these places are going through their own trouble. So yeah, hopefully something will, will come up and people will be able to make, you know, a, a good wage writing about sports. Um, and cause I mean, that, yeah, I mean, so much of what we enjoy about sports, at least for me as a kid was reading about it. Like I just would, I'd get the front page, you know, the sports section of the newspaper and I'd just pour through it as a kid. And then I read Sports Illustrated and read all these books. And it's like reading about sports is so much a part of the experience. You have to think that something else is going to come up. I just don't know what it is or will people have the money to put that together. And it's also really tempting to overstate, even though we are in the middle of a pandemic, it's tempting to overstate that this is the end of anything as we know it. I mean, look, this is the biggest disruption to sports and to journalism that the industry has faced in who knows how long. Um, and it is easy to say that it's the that biggest means disruption it's to over. American sports ever. Like even in Absolutely. World War II, they were still playing games. Yeah. 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 Even during the Spanish flu, they were still playing games. <laughs> so it is definitely easy to be completely apocalyptic about the future of sports and the entities that cover sports. And we do have to remember that this will end and there will be demand. Um, and someone is going to figure out a way to make it profitable and desirable. Well, you say that, but I just, our behavior is going to change as a result of this. Don't you think like it's going to be altered in some ways forever? And I don't know in what ways that what that's going to look like or what's going to happen. Will people just get used to the idea of not watching ESPN and getting their sports in other ways? I don't know. But um, I do. This is the pessimist in me thinking that we're, we're going to be irrevocably changed in some ways. And it's really hard to know what's going to come out of this. And for me, the big thing is advertisers. What advertisers are going to be able to come back and spend money and support media institutions in the way that they did before? Like, because there's going to be a lot of, you know, businesses and corporations that are going to go away and never come back. Who's going to fill in and take the place and help fund a lot of the journalism and sports coverage that we liked before? I don't know. Well, these are billion these are billion dollar issues. I mean, what is ESPN's ad revenue from the NBA playoffs? It's like 600 million bucks. March Madness is close to a billion dollars. I mean, the trickle down effects are unknown at this point and they are they could be incredibly severe. Is ESPN going to want to bid, you know, multi-billion dollars for 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 sports league games? We don't know yet, and that's going to have effects too. But in our more narrow world of journalism, the games are going to continue. We just don't know in what capacity. All right, let's end there. And I think that as we transition to after balls, we really have not stopped for a second and taken note 
of a monumental change, among monumental changes in the sports world, and one that has affected Joel very personally, and that is the end of the XFL. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I predicted it. I didn't. I didn't know that it was going to end like this. <laughs> that doesn't count, man. Yeah, I mean, I said it, I didn't think they were going to finish the season. I didn't know it was going to happen like this. <laughs> Just take the win, Joel. Take the no, win. I will. I got the dub. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. All right. After balls, Stefan, you were looking through, I'm guessing you were looking at basketball reference for I was. the least important. Every player on the 97-98 balls is Deserves equal credit. Michael Jordan, Dickie Simpkins, they all they all got rings. Um, but who did you decide we should honor? Because perhaps the last dance will not honor them sufficiently. I'm looking at the roster. I mean, David Vaughn played in three games. I don't know if he got a ring. I assume he did. You know, he scored 1.3 points per game in those games. But for me, it's, it's really like remembering some guy's choice. And I think Dickie Simpkins was a good option. But what about Rusty LaRue? Cannot overlook Rusty LaRue. He played 14 games for those Bulls, 3.5 points per game. Great name, too. He averaged 9.3 points for the Bulls in 99-2000. You know, granted, he only played four games, but that was a big year for Rusty. And he's now a uh, high school basketball coach. He's the coach at West Forsyth High School, where Chris Paul went. So I'm going to give him retroactive credit for Chris Paul. That's how much I revere Rusty LaRue. Stefan, what is your Rusty LaRue? All right, this is going to be a, a Scrabble afterball, so indulge me. The North American School Scrabble Championship was supposed to be this past weekend in Baltimore. It would have been my daughter Chloe's ninth and final youth championship. She's been playing since fourth grade and is now in 12th. Not just for her, but for all the players and for me, because I love this stuff. It really is my favorite weekend of the year. I decided to organize an online replacement, and I gave it a name, the Quarantined High School Championship Online Quasco. I recruited some Scrabble buddies, my guy Vince to run the tech side, former North American champ and hang-up guest Will Anderson to do a live stream with other top experts. Will designed a really cool platform, including what I believe to be the first Scrabble Telestrator. I spread the word. 42 high school kids signed up. They played 12 games over two days, plus a championship final on an unofficial site called the Internet Scrabble Club, or ISC, that is housed on servers in, I kid you not, Romania. From a purely spiritual sense, it was awesome. The players and parents were grateful for a couple of days of normalcy, if it was via websites and texts and emails and Zoom. On Saturday night, after the first day of play, a parent wrote to thank me, and I wrote back low bar, but best day in a while. She replied, actually, the bar is high now. Hard to pull off something truly communal. She was right. And my heart is pretty full. What I wasn't expecting was for the weekend to produce the live sports content that we also need. 
and that it would be courtesy of my daughter. All right, here's the situation. Game four, Chloe is playing the defending champ, her good friend, Jem, an 11th grader from California. Jem is crushing her. He's just used both of the blanks to play Explore. He's up by 160 points, 378 to 218. The tiles are dwindling. In Scrabble, you try never to give up, but sometimes it's totally hopeless. Chloe, though, doesn't quit. She throws down a nine-letter Hail Mary through disconnected letters, an E and a C. The word is rediscern, R-E-D-I-S-C-E-R-N, for 78 points. I was watching on another floor and couldn't scream because she would have heard me. Finding nine-letter words, let alone through disconnected letters, is incredibly hard. Most players don't even try try to look for them. Chloe did. I love my daughter. Now, the pressure shifts to Jem. He has to decide whether to challenge rediscern. But if he does, and it happens to be an actual word, he loses a turn and Chloe has a chance to get back in the game. The announcers, Will Anderson and two other top players, Mac Meller and Jackson Smiley, are loving it. That's genius. That's awesome. That's, that actually, that's actually amazing. That's so good. That was definitely the play here, for sure. And unless you are 100% sure that Rediscern is not good, it is a almost impossible challenge for Jim to make. It really is just a technicality that this word is not in the dictionary because it could easily be. The other critical factor here is that the N in Rediscern slots right above a triple word score square in the bottom right-hand corner of the board with a clear lane up to another triple word score square. Jim decides not to challenge Rediscern. He scores 30 points elsewhere on the board, Chloe draws the letters E-E-G-H-I-L and a W. And when they pop up on the screen, the commentators immediately see the possibility. And two seconds later, Chloe makes the play. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. That's absolutely absurd. <laughs> Uh, I am speechless. I'm speechless. I can't believe that. Wheeling covers two triple word score squares. That's a triple triple. Nine times the value of the word plus the 50 point bonus. 194 points. Chloe suddenly is ahead 490 to 408 and she wins the game 511 to 459. It is one of the craziest sequences anyone's ever seen. Before rediscern, computer analysis showed that Chloe's win probability was like one in a thousand. Wow. But then on Sunday, she's in another desperate situation, trailing by about 70 late in the game. She's got a blank and tries a couple of bingos that are challenged off. She's guessing. Apparently, she doesn't see the last actual word, nearlier. N-E-A-R-L-I-E-R, -E -E nearly, nearly, or nearliest, those are words, from an N on a triple lane. She's got just five seconds on her timer. Will, Mack, and Jackson are debating what her opponent, Evan, a 10th grader from Massachusetts, might do to secure the win in case Chloe happens to find or guess nearlier, which, of course, she's shown no signs of doing. Yeah, but either way, it's really close for comfort. See, now, okay. now if Chloe... Oh! oh, my God, oh my God again. Oh, my goodness. What? 
This Incredible. is insane. So clutch. <laughs> Incredible. This time, her play of nearlier ended the game. She screamed. I screamed. I ran downstairs. Do you believe in miracles? Twice in one tournament. April Madness. Way better than March Madness in our house. It was very much a Lake Placid moment. I kept waiting for you to 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 go ahead and make that connection there, Stefan. So congratulations. <laughs> that was. You must be very proud. Oh my God, that was awesome. Chloe wound up fourth with a nine and three record. She drew some bad virtual tiles in the final game that would have sent her into the best of three championship playoff. So congrats to Thomas, a ninth grader from North Carolina, who beat 11th grader Leo from LA to take the Quasco crown. And thanks to some parents and coaches, we were able to pay the top finishers some cash. And thanks to a couple of really big, generous donations, the top three finishers in the tournament are each going to pick a COVID-related charity to which $500 will be donated. How is that going to affect their NCAA eligibility? I was just about to say, I mean... (laughs) At this point, you know, Chloe is totally ineligible. She's won more money playing Scrabble than I have. That's great, Stefan, slash, I can't believe you've ruined her eligibility. Josh, what's your Rusty LaRue? According to the website BoxRec, Ezra Charles is history's greatest pound-for-pound boxer. I don't know how these ratings work, and I don't really care to figure it out. It seems complicated. All I've been able to learn is that there's some kind of computer rating, that they're based on which boxer has the highest career peak. For the purposes of this afterball, I'm less interested in Ezard Charles, sorry, Ezard Charles, than the guy at the bottom of the list. BoxRec has 12,869 pages worth of boxers. There are 50 on each page. When I checked a few weeks ago, the guy at the very bottom of those 60,000 plus individuals was K.O. Pete McBride, who has one listed fight in July 1924. All right, just being fully honest... I looked again as I was writing this up uh, on Monday, and I couldn't find KOP McBride at the bottom of the list of boxers. So if you <laughs> go and look yourself, <laughs> just take my word for it. A couple weeks ago, the guy at the bottom of the list was KOP McBride. And just just roll with it. Um, so who was this KOP McBride, the worst boxer in the history of the world? On June 28th, 1924, According to the Courier Post of Camden, New Jersey, he was a young man full of promise. Every time Pete McBride swings his cloth on a pair of dogs at the YMCA boot black stand, he is helping condition himself for his bout with Eddie Cheney at Mount Holly. That story said that more than 200 local fans were expected to attend the fight, and that McBride was training with Tommy Wilson, who is to meet Babe Ruth in the windup of the Mount Holly show. After reading another article, I learned that Tommy Wilson wasn't going to have a meet-and-greet with the baseball player Babe Ruth, but that he was going to have a boxing match with a guy who happened to also be named Babe Ruth, but had no connection (laughs) to the baseball player Babe Ruth. I guess multiple people were named Babe Ruth back then. Mm. Anyway, back to our hero. The Courier-Post of Camden, New Jersey reported on July 12, 1924, that Cheney and McBride came together at the sound of the bell in the first round. And after a short exchange, emphasis on short, Cheney sent McBride to the mat with a stinging left poke to the boot black's left jaw. Apparently, working at a shoe shine stand does not, in fact, prepare you for a career in professional boxing. And that was about it for KO Pete McBride. Until October 14th, 1926, 
when he appeared on page one of the Camden, New Jersey Courier Post. Headline, K.O. King is sought as family deserter. Subhead, sister-in-law disappears on same day Pete McBride vanishes. The police of Burlington County are searching for Peter LaGracia of Camden and Mapleshade. Pete, in scare quotes, who is known in pugilistic circles in Camden as Pete McBride, the, quote, knockout king, is wanted on the charge of deserting his wife and four small children. The police are also searching for Mrs. Teresa LaGracia, 19 years old, of Mapleshade, wife of Pete's brother, Charles, who disappeared at the same time. The dual disappearance has led police to believe that the couple may have gone together. No warrant has been issued for the woman, however. Huh. What was their first clue? Mm. (laughs) The story continues. Pete, again in scare quotes, formerly conducted the boot black stand in the YMCA in Camden. He sold out on September 1st to another boot black for $2. Then he disappeared, leaving behind his wife and four children, Lena, nine years old, Millie, seven years old, Charles, four, and Ralph, 20 months. The missing husband and father, who is 32 years old, was a much better shoe-shining artist than he was a pugilist. Pete had two memorable battles, which earned him the title of the Knockout King. In the first battle, Pete advanced to the center of the ring, and 28 seconds later, he was carried back to his corner unconscious. In his second bout, Pete was counted out in 14 seconds. Then Pete hung up his boxing gloves and went back to his shoe brushes. So what have we learned? We have learned that the name K.O. Pete McBride was not intended as a compliment. But the big news here is that Box Rec is selling our man short. He got the crap beaten out of him twice, not just that one fight. So what became of Pete? A week after that first story, the trusty Courier Post of Camden followed up. Ex-pugs wandering, forgiven by wife. Pete McBride returns home and desertion charges are dropped. The Courier Post reported that our man was back in the bosom of his family, Pete denied that he'd run off with the sister-in-law and said, my wife and I and the kiddies are going to live happy now. (laughs) He said he'd left his Jersey home for D.C. and then, quote, motored around the country before coming back home. There's also some more backstory about his boxing career. Apparently, it was a customer at his shoeshine stand who told Pete he'd make a good fighter. And Pete took the customer at his word and secured a fight. That fight was an epic of pugilism in Camden, 28 seconds after the opening gong sounded. Well, we we know what happened there. After that, the trail of Pete McBride runs cold in the Courier Post. I think we're all a little bit dubious about the... uh, you know, the the claim that he wasn't with the sister-in-law. If you know what became of Pete and his family, please write us at hangupatslate.com. I'm sure maybe Pete's heirs would also be interested to know what happened during that um, mysterious week-long period in which he ran away from home. Also, if you're one of the powers that be a box wreck, please credit KO Pete McBride with the two losses that he earned. Thank you. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we continue our conversation about the Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. It's rare to see a late bloomer like a Ja Morant. Like most of these guys are people we've heard of for years. But Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman, guys who like had these late growth spurts and emerged out of poverty, you hardly see that anymore. And it's just sort of a throwback. It's just sort of fascinating to watch. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
Thank you so, so much to everyone who is already a Slate Plus member. And if you're considering it, please, anything that you could do to support us would be greatly appreciated. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember, Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.